Where did you find this uh, Forrester? Do you have an account for Forrester? I know I do, but... I do not. I found it. Someone sent it internally, and I snagged it up. Um, but I, I think this is kind of an interesting like end of the year kind of topic. What do we see? Like, if we're going to look in our crystal ball, what comes up next year? And, you know, then this time next year, we get to look back and laugh at ourselves. I'm like, ha, 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 we were wrong. We didn't get any of this stuff right. Well, the predictions are interesting, right? Predictions this way is kind of like the weatherman, right? I don't have to be right. I just have to be close. You've heard me rant about the damn weather, man. They're not even close anymore. They don't have to be. The other freaking day. The other day is so frustrating. So there's this uh, this YouTube guy I watch. His name is Ryan, Ryan Hall. Oh, I think does, I watch him. Yeah, yeah. Ryan Hall, y'all. Yeah, super yeah. great. Like he does like this like super, super high level. I like him weather. better than any of the weather stations. Like he's he, awesome. He's awesome. And so he was telling us like, hey, this big storm's going to blow through the Midwest over the last handful of days. Be careful. Like it's coming. And I kept, I kept looking at like Apple weather and all this stuff. And it's like, and I was looking at, it was like Tuesday. And he said, the storm was really going to come on Thursday. They're like, nothing, nothing. And then like, oh, it looks like it's moving a little bit east. Okay. Still nothing, nothing. And then that day I'm looking up at the clouds. I'm like, damn, it really looks like it's going to rain. And I had looked four or five times that day at the weather. There was nothing, nothing, nothing. And then I finally look up. It looks like it's about to rain. And I pull up my app. And it says 50% chance. (laughs) (laughs) And then what happens in like the next 25 minutes? It's raining. Right. And then their app goes, oh, look, we were right. Look, it rained. We said it was going to rain and it rained. And I do believe there was even one point where it's like the prediction 50%. And then at the top, it's like rain will stop in 30 minutes. Like, come on, man, be consistent, at least on the same screen. The, The issue I have with the weather apps is that I think they just run the models way too much. Yes. Where they default to them. Like it's trying to do this, like, like this hyper localization and it's running these models a lot. And it, that's where it just goes wrong. In my opinion, where, you know, this, like the hyper local thing, just, just kind of weird where I don't, like, when I think of local, I think of like our area, right? The St. Louis Metro area, like, what are the chances of it raining in this big ass area? I don't care if it's five miles from me this way or that way or whatever. I might be traveling somewhere that goes through there and I'm going to maybe need to have the, you know, the top on my Jeep. Right. Exactly. Like, I might need my doors on. It's just this like <laughs> six foot area. Don't no. I need a bigger area. And I think that's really where they've, they've kind of dropped the ball. Yeah. But I also think we're going to get into some of that. In some of these predictions, because in my opinion, they do kind of allude to some of the stuff in here. I think they do. Some of them, which is funny because I was just going to ask you. And like this, do you think the Forrester's predictions are as close as the weather or far away? Because I, 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 think, I, to get to share. I think some of them are a little, little far off to the left. Like I think they are. Honestly, a lot of these, I think, are pretty, pretty out there. Yeah. But I think we should go through them. You want to go through them uh, one by one and kind of go from top down? I see where so. we get through? All right. Let's do it. And then I think we should also throw in some of our own predictions. I know I have a handful. 
I know I didn't give you any time to think of any, but that's all right. We'll see what happens. We'll do off the cuff. Well, off the cuff is always good when it comes to predictions because you're never wrong when you give a snap decision on anything. No, I'm 50% right. (laughs) 80% of the time, I'm right 90% of the time. Right. I was only wrong once and I was mistaken. Um, So the first one that was on here was generative AI will sweep into consumers' lives. Now, Uh, I was the... well, the first time I read this is how is this even a prediction? Everybody and their brother is currently making it is we're, they're putting AI into literally everything. I remember back I was I'm old enough to remember when we all made fun of I believe it was called Smaltz. It was an AI powered salt machine <laughs> that sat in the middle of your table and it would through AI, figure out how much salt you actually need on your food. Okay. It was, it was a, it, who would have thought it didn't make it through Kickstarter, but it was a bit of a joke amongst people that do kind of product work. Right. But now there's kind of AI and I'm going to put AI in air quotes in everything, or there's, and there's definitely people trying to shove it into everything. I mean, the, I'm not going to call out the the washer brand, but I, I can't remember which one. It's probably all of them. Where I, I'm gonna I think a lot of them are trying to put it in now. Yeah. Into your washing machine. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Like how, what exactly is this AI going to do with the sensors that are currently inside of my washer? And then how is it actually going to do any of this stuff? Yeah. And, and, and me a better outcome just to be specific on it too it's talking about gen ai and not so much ai or machine learning specific it's it's really calling out not that it makes your answer wrong but uh it is calling out that generative ai is the talk of the town and that generally is still misunderstood and the other part in the bottom was 50 percent of the u.s and 43 percent of french online adults who have heard of AI say that generative AI uh, poses a threat to society. So believing that um, it's not going to go away, but that's it. It's a threat. Um, (laughs) I don't think it's a threat, but you know, it's something new that scares people. That's right. And you, you know, when you think of a lot of, you you look back into history, a lot of the, the big changes that have come, of course, there's kind of fear of, of those kinds of things and what might come or might not come. Um, the unknown is a very scary place. Um, but yeah. the other thing to call out here is, you know, a lot of people, a lot of those same skeptics are going to end up using AI in a lot of tools and love it. Well, they might not even know they're using it and they might just right. find it valuable. Uh, to what you said before, uh, before we go too far away from it, if you think about it, I went and I looked it up just to check my check myself. And we've had conversations of these problems where we're scared of something new with television, computers, the internet, yep. video yep. games, yep. social media. Yep. We've had it with ebooks. If you remember the whole thing with ebooks and online reading, do you remember that? So they felt that you were going to lose focus and not be able to learn. Because by going digital, you had access to the internet, you could follow URLs in the text and things like that. So you wouldn't focus on the book. You would be 
apt to go and follow the content externally and then go off on rabbit holes and, and get lost. Um, the, I, I must have been not quite old enough for that one. No, you don't remember that one? That was when the Kindle started coming out. Yeah, or at least maybe at that point I wasn't paying attention to to that one. I can I can definitely see where that came from because there's plenty of people that still kind of fall into that same vein of, oh, well, you know, reading a a a, a book, like a real physical book is the only way you can actually read a book. Yeah, I do both myself. If it's a book that I know I really want to focus on and I want to highlight it and I want to write in the Marjolina, uh, then I'm going to go buy the book because I know I'm going to tear the book apart with posty notes and notes. Yeah. And I create my own private index in a book when I read it. So uh, I don't follow the index the book has. I take the blank page in the back and I create my own index so that I can find the topics that align to things that I'm interested in. So I tear the book apart when I go through it. 90% of the books you read though, don't require that level of focus. So Kindle's great for that. Yeah. So here, here's a, a, a random question, but maybe we'll, we'll put a poll into uh, to, to get people's opinions on this. So if you were to consume an audiobook, do you say that you read that book or that you listened to that book? Oh, good one. What do you say? Because I know mine. So I'm a bit torn here. Like, in the end, I would probably say that I, I read the book because it's a book like it's a thing that you're consuming it's content you're learning from it um listening to me is more like listening to music and those you're still consuming it but you're right. not necessarily you know learning per se from it uh, or i don't know like i the, the it's one of those questions like you come up with an answer then you start to explain it and then it just goes completely sideways yeah yeah and you trip like, over yourself on it right a mental corner where it's like no like yeah those are the same yeah your brain is now going yeah so I, uh, I used to drive to Jersey an hour and a half each way. And I listened to 43 books one year, once 50 books just in one year, uh, because the ride was so long that I would always throw, um, audio books in and just listen. But I always said I read, and even if somebody asked me now, I read the book. I think I actually consumed it better by listening to it from a podcast or, um, you know, a video, uh, audio version of it. than if I did, uh, the mere fact of just sitting to read it, uh, cause I was captive in the car. I was focused and listening, but I always say I read it. I don't, I think I always say, see, this is a good question you have. We have to put this in a poll because I always say I, I read the book, but then I tell people I did it on audible yeah. because I used audible for it at the time. And, and so I, I, I follow it up, but I never just say, Oh, I listened to the book. Cause that sounds like you weren't paying attention, I guess. Yeah, that's right. It, it sounds like, oh, I read a book. It means I consumed it. I learned from it. And now I can speak to the contents of its pages. Right. You yeah. technically do the same the other way. It just sounds. Right. But when we do a podcast, say, we say we listen to a podcast. We never say we read a podcast. Well, of course, because it's all audio. And it's yeah. theoretical. Well, you could read the transcript, but nobody does. Right. We think of it more like radio. Yeah. That's interesting. So yeah, well, before we go down this black hole, like too far. In that same section, there was one other quote that's really interesting that I want to I want to get your thought yeah, on. Please. And the quote says, people need to learn and think for themselves. This goes along with the other idea. I've heard this way too many times and I don't disagree with it. 
So I'm curious your thought. I do believe there is a danger with the things we're seeing that are being created today. Now, I use AI for different things, and we can dive into that in our discussion, right? You know you know what I use it for. You and I use it for different yeah. tool sets. Now, I think for myself, and I use that as an assistant, but however, a lot of young kids and different generations that are growing up today are learning to use that to do their thinking for them, hence the quote, right? That mm-hmm. um, people need to learn to think for themselves. How do you feel about that quote? Do you think that our generations growing up are, are going to lose that cognitive ability to do problem solving and think for themselves? Or do you think that no matter what they use, they're, they're still going to have those skill sets? I, I think this is a, a significant shift in how we operate. And we are now the dinosaurs when it comes to this, you know, oh, I'm going to go to the library and I'm going to read a book. And I'm going to consume information. And then I'm going to be able to hopefully take you some critical thinking skills and apply that in some way that's useful for society. The, I think the, yes, people need to think for themselves, but what I think is going to happen is they're just going to be able to take curated information and be able to kind of remove that base layer of it's like having a really good assistant, like you said, right. But it's going to bring you a bunch of information and then you could take that information and now apply that in a higher order way. And I, I, that's the hope. There's an awful lot of people that are just going to take it for what it's worth and do nothing with it. And I think that will dumb down society in some way, but we've been seeing that for a number of years, right? It's not new. People said the internet was going to make us all stupid. Search engines were going to do it too. You know, it's everything. And I, you know, my biggest fear with gen AI in this area is that you're, you're being removed from the source of the content. And it is, it's the different, it's, it's almost, you have to look at it as almost secondhand. That the data is secondhand. Yeah. And and like, if you're going to talk about it in court, it's almost hearsay because it's, it's third party information. And it's being modified into a readable format for you, but it's being collated from different sources that you're not aware of. So I look at it almost like, well, let's look at a different example. And I think this, this overlays pretty well. So say I go to a conference and I listen to three different speakers talk about three different topics. And then I come back to you and tell you what I think they said. Are you going to believe me? Probably. Yeah. Based on the trust of the person, right? Am I going to, you know, mistake concepts? Am I going to be able to speak at it at a much deeper level than what I've learned? No. And in the end, you would much rather get it first person or directly from the person that's that has that knowledge than secondhand, whether it's through a person or it's through generative AI. That that can have different levels of danger when it comes to, you know, we've all played the telephone game as a kid. Things get messed up and no one's really trying to mess them up, but they just do. Right. Yeah, it's not done maliciously. And anything has. Yeah. It's a problem. Yeah, it's not done maliciously. It's not done on purpose, but... To to that point, right? Uh, One of the techniques for reading a book is to look 
who inspired that author? What books did they reference? And then you go back and read the books that that author also read. So pick, read a book that you like and go find two or three other books that that author had referenced and go read his original material. That way you're truly learning from the source. It, it works to solve the problem you just said. That's right. But if I'm using generative AI, which is pulling that data from, you know, petabytes of, of data that's out there, not and then collating it together. So there truly is no three sources to go to. There's no one source to go to. Then it's easier to make up the answer. And there's no way to, to validate it, right? There's no way to, to test it. So then it does become dangerous because you can change narratives to things, change understandings of things, um, and the original understanding gets lost. So, yeah, that's right. And we're going to have to, you know, and this kind of jumps into one of the topics at the bottom. Um, and this is another Forrester, you know, kind of prediction that, um, you know, regulators are going to kind of have gen AI in their sites. And I think this overlays very well into that where a, you know, an AI is only as good as the, the content that it's trained on. And how do you make sure and regulate in some ways, not only the information that it's trained on, but also copyright information, personal information, all of these other things that, you know, used to be very difficult to do. You had to go gather information from a bunch of different sources. I could probably, you know, the way that things currently exist, especially in the U.S. market where we have very lax kind of data privacy laws, when it comes to like stalking and all kinds of other things that used to be really hard to do, you, you know, now that some AI tools have very real-time information, especially when it comes to social media and these other things, you can find an awful lot of information to figure out where people are, what they do, who they work for, the places yeah. they go. You can create a really good profile about someone. Process. Yeah. Sure. Well, think about in the future, you could have uh, insurance companies, you know, that can do a full validation of your entire life, whether it's true or not, whatever gets generated and use that to decide on premiums decide on the coverage you're allowed to have. You could have employers that do deep searches beyond what we normally do today in an employee. And whether it's true or not, because again, it's not validated completely, they could believe that and it could affect people for getting jobs and, you know. Well, so, uh, you know, one of the challenges as this starts to seep deeper into the culture and I spent, I spent about 10 years in healthcare and one of the big challenges we had through all of that is identifying all the belly buttons, the heartbeats. Mm -hmm. like, how do you identify an actual human and differentiate that from another human? And, you know, of course, name, birth date, you know, state of birth, like those types of things, you can use that to help identify people. But there are plenty of people that are, especially when you get a larger population, same name, same birthday, same Yep. You know, lots of the exact same attributes and, you know, or twins. So say you have twins that are named exactly the same thing, born on the same day, born in the same place, born in the same everything. And one decides to go commit a bunch of crimes and the other one is, you know, not. 
And so how do you differentiate from them when it comes to police reports, social media accounts, all of these other things? And I believe this is really the area where regulators are going to have to start to step in to, you know, you can ruin someone's life. Correct. And I, in my state, about four hours away, there's another guy that has my exact same name that has a pretty long rap sheet. And how do you differ? I mean, we're clearly in different cities now, but how do you differentiate things that happened in the past with limited sets of information of that, that person? And that goes what I'm saying before, when you write a profile on someone and it mistakens their identity, yeah. you can ruin somebody's coverage, their job, anything based on information. And what you said before, 23 people in a room uh, and you'll have two at the same birthday. So within a group of 23 people and That's probably cool. I'm guessing that number is probably close to the same for some of the other things you were saying, whether it's the, you know, where they live, um, age things. My old boss at one of my other jobs had the same birthday. We were both born close to the same time and uh, we were the same age and we just happened to work together. Like it was wild, right? Um, even at my last job here, I, uh, younger than me, but again, somebody else I bumped into same birthday, everything else, you know, it's not unheard of. When you, when you start looking at a big enough population, you will find love lots of very strange commonalities when you, when you look at that. And so how do you start to differentiate? How do you start to regulate that? How do you start to put in the right protections for people? Yeah. That's when they're going to try to put a chip in our neck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We're all going to get those dog tags. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think this lays into kind of the next, the next one on the list where, you know, AI will spur the age of creativity. Yeah. Now I don't believe that. So what do you think? And I'll tell you why when you're done. Unless you want me to go first. (laughs) You know, you, you know, you go first. I've I've gone first last time. You go first this time. Okay. And I'll, I'll pick you apart. All right. Yeah. Then you can beat on me a little bit. So, when you look at productivity throughout the years, if you listen to anybody who's done productivity or, or creativity, sorry, wrong word, creativity, creativity is coming from boredom almost. Yep. Right. And a lot of amazing things have come in from, come from necessity. I can't talk today. Have come from necessity, like, uh, creating a unique backpack or a bag or a widget because you knew you needed it. No one else created it or writing a book that no one else wrote because you wanted to write a book. You're being creative. Uh, It might be Van Halen's a story. I like, you know, they needed to entertain themselves. They learned music. They created an amazing band with a unique sound because that's what they were told. You know, we're not buying you toys, you know, figure this out, go learn your instruments, go play, you know, go do something. I don't think this is going to help because it's further allowing people to be busy without being completely creative. And now I, I offset that with saying there's probably a 10 or 20% group in there always who's trying to figure out how to make a business with it, use it to make money, you know, like, cause you, you read that online all the time, but I think it's a very small subset. I think most people are going to be less creative because the tool just does it easy for them compared to going through the normal hard work that you have to do 
to truly be creative and, and work out of the box. I, I, I do agree. I do agree with that for the most part. I think the one, the one interesting pushback that I would give is the bar or the barrier of entry is far lower than it's ever been in. In what way? So dive into that a bit. So if you, so say you wanted to do videos or drawing or lots of different creative tasks, you would, you'd, you'd have to have lots of tools to be able to do that. Drawing as a pencil and a piece of paper, right? Or crayon on a rock. I know exactly what you're going to say. Yeah. Yeah. So, so give me a better answer. (laughs) YouTube video. I agree with. Yes. You need a little bit more, but that's more, that's more what I'm kind of referring to. It's not, (laughs) not to just the basics of it. Like, let me go scribble with a crayon. Of course. But if you're trying to, to build more than that, well, take, and to be more serious to what you're saying, right? Like if you go down the path of creating your own business, Right. Or creating your own music. You want to create your own band. Like that's a huge one that I, I agree goes with the model you're saying, but you have to be creative to want to create the band. So right. if I give you a AI driven, well, you need both. So I, I was just trying to add in. Yes. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you need, if you are creative and you want to do these kinds of things, there's nothing in your way. Yes. And that part I agree with the tools and these tools are helping you to, work beyond the limitations that we had years ago. That's right. Right. But now the question would come is, is there a false sense that the tools are going to make you smarter and better and work faster? Because these tools are really not that much smarter. They might make things and certain things a little faster and easier if you learn to use them correctly. But I don't believe like the article the, the white paper or whatever PDF we have here uh, says that this uh, shift is going to focus and free up 50% more time for employees to engage in creative problem solving. Um, I don't see where. So yeah, this is a little bit of a different twist. Cause we were talking about creativity at first, right? Now the next part is really like, like this is saying it's going to provide of, time, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I went on a bit of a rant on this a couple of days ago, and I'll guess I'll have to do it again. There, there is no shortage of complexity inside of an organization. They are, they are built by humans. They act, you know, Conway's law, like it will act the way that you organize all of these different things. That's not going away. All of those challenges aren't going away. Right. There is no silver bullet. and one of the 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 other pieces is don't automate bad processes. Yeah, that's and the Bill I Gates quote. Uh, a bad process automated is just a faster bad process. <laughs> yeah. And I've seen this a lot in some of the AI tools that have been released, specifically some around like infrastructure and those kinds of things where, hey, your infrastructure is down. You can ask the AI like, hey, I have a problem with my infrastructure. It spits out a YAML file for you. You have to apply that YAML file to your Kubernetes cluster. And then it gives you another error. And then you put it back into the AI. And then it gives you another, like, and you end up, you're trying to automate this really bad process 
you know, if you were to change it and say, well, I can build this directly into Kubernetes or something, and it's going to automatically try to, to fix itself before it comes to you, then yes, that is going to free up your time. But, you know, when you look at all of these bad processes that are in a business, they were there for a reason, whether it's security, whether maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, maybe whatever, but they were there for a reason. Yep. Companies they were fixing been, something at some point in time. That's right. Companies have been going on a cloud migration for what, a dozen years now? Yeah. At least like 10 years or more ish. I think over 10 years and now. There are still people that are not on the cloud yet. And the one thing that this completely ignores is the fact that. A, you have to develop all the process. You have to change all of the process. You have to reorganize all of the people. You have to dump a ton of money into an AI to, that hopefully it will help. And maybe it will, maybe it won't. But here's the one kicker that really, really makes this look like, a, like talking about all of that, a really interesting thing. It's even if you were to do, be successful, just say you were successful in creating an AI that can do all of that stuff, you finished all of the process, you did all of those kinds of things. That AI still has an error rate. Yeah. And it's not like you built an automation, you, you ran a script that does X, Y, and Z and does all of these things. You just now have this thing that is going to do this stuff for you. And if it screws up 8% of the time, is that something you're willing to actually accept? Maybe. So, okay, well, if it has a, you know, 8% might be high. We're just going to go low. Say it has a 2% failure rate. But that, that process that you built it is critical to your business. So is 2% okay? And you might not even know it has a 2%. Check it. But that's the thing. You might not even know that you have a 2% issue because there's that false sense of trust that you have in some of these systems that we're building. Right. So and that could be a major differentiator for an organization where it like makes it lose millions of dollars. That 2% could be a game changer in a positive or negative way. Could be, but that that's, com you know, completely ignoring the insane amount of costs that are going to have to be put in yeah. to actually make some of this stuff happen. Right. And what's the actual ROI? Cause you might not get any value from it, and but just like other things in technology we've seen over the years, you're going to spend years, a ton of money and get no real value out of it. And we also have to be like, if you look at the wording that they have here, and if you read it carefully, it's, you know, current, current projects already cited are sorry, cited up to 40% in software development tasks. And then the other thing that it says is, AI initiatives will boost productivity and creative problem solving by 50%. So are you talking about just the problem solving or not? Right. And exactly. Right. So like what I've seen on the software development side is yes, it can increase your typing ability for coding by 30% ish for more senior developers, less for junior developers. Yeah. But that's, that is only 30% of the actual problem. And so if you have a developer that has 100% of their time and 70% of the time is doing other things, 60-ish percent of that time is doing other things other than actually typing code, then if you increase that by 50%, it's only 15% of the total. Right. 
And those the tools are not foolproof. So there's still other processes that happen ar- around the entire life cycle as well. So the, the value add might actually be just a small percentage. Yeah. Almost like people are uh, over-exaggerating what might be able to happen. No, never. <laughs> um, so this, this next prediction, I think, is is kind of interesting. And it's that agencies will bet big on brand-specific AI models. And what they're talking about here is kind of large, large consulting companies like Accenture and the like are going to kind of build build AI models to help them with kind of all of their kind of custom AI solutions for enterprise clients. Yeah. Um, I, I think about this one, they, they quote a $50 million in partnerships, which is just not, A, it's not that much money. When you think of all of the money that, you know, is being spent to build all the AI itself, even like yeah. the money being thrown at it, all the angel investors and everything else. Right. Yeah. It's billions of dollars. It's billions. Absolutely. $50 million is a drop in the bucket, but there is an awful lot of people that are going to try and build, you know, here's a model that I can use. that's going to help you with whatever, whatever, whatever. So I think these are going to be a lot more smoke and mirrors than anything else. And yes. we'll, we'll see, but uh, you, oh. you, you have to be very, Again, to make these things useful in a lot of ways, you have to know a lot of specifics for a given company for it to really be all that that useful. And I agree with your thought. I think a lot of this is, unfortunately, to make money, not so much that we know exactly how to solve some of the problems. We'll learn and we'll figure it out. But we've seen this with other technologies uh, over the years, different architectural ideas, different patterns, right? different products. Um, you know, before microservices, we had, you know, um, service bus and service bus got picked up by vendors and vendors destroyed that, that framework by selling it as a package solution that became big backs, big box solutions. And then they created monoliths and like that broke that whole model. Uh, this and somewhat in the same is a focus on domains and saying, oh, you're in this domain. I have these three accelerators that plug in and, and not that you can't build accelerators to get started. But if we go past accelerators and we start saying we have complete solutions, it's probably bull. Like there's, yep. we don't know enough yet, you know? Mm-hmm. And so if we, we jump to the next one, AI processing will hit a wall in 2024. Yeah. This and was the hardware limitation. Yeah. And I think this is, relatively true i mean we already have a chip shortage now um i think you're gonna see and you already are all of the hyperscalers building you know ai training you know managed services and other things into um into their you know given clouds yeah um i I think there's just a well, there's one line in here that they called out, and I'm trying to find it. I think it was at the very end. Um, ah, here it is. So it says, Forrester predicts that these hardware issues will tamper ambitions, and that aspirations will be forced to be prioritized applications, settling on those with the most obvious ROI. Mm. And when I when I read that sentence, 
it they're essentially calling for the you know moving moving towards the trough in the hype cycle. I was we gonna say that, yeah, yeah. Peak. Yep. And it's like, well, yay, we're not gonna use AI and everything, but things that have a clear ROI absolutely will. And there's plenty of those that are out there, but you know, not everybody's gonna use AI for everything because it's really expensive and not just for the hardware, but for the hardware, the software, the training. Um, and it doesn't fit every problem either. We're trying to shoehorn it to everything just like we did blockchain years ago. Uh, yeah, it it wasn't even hardly years ago. It was what four years ago. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago. (laughs) Well, in, in technology, it's forever ago, but true. And you have the metaverse in the middle of that. So it's, yeah. Um, the, the thing I wonder is it, is it going to help put money towards, um, quantum as we start going down that path? Or is it going to go the other path, which is now we start to look at ways of optimizing the language models, the processing, and we start to double down on how we how we process all of this data. So we look at optimizing the engines in the process itself because the, the chip can't get any faster. So it's it's back to programming. And I don't mean specifically the programming itself, but programming like we did a long time ago where you were limited by the hardware. So you had to get better at writing the software, right? There was a certain period in time where the hardware was so far ahead of the software that developers could lax. You didn't have to worry about memory management the same way. You didn't have to worry about a lot of other things the same way. You could just write and the hardware could handle it. Are we getting to a point in time where that's going to flip again? And now... Your uh, architectural practices, your design practices are really going to have to be thought through and spot on. And languages are also going to have to change so that you have better management again of the chip and, um, you know, of the of memory and things like that. So we're going to need to optimize the software to now work with limitations in the hardware again. I couldn't agree more. And, you know. I think it's. You know, open AI, open AI is spending, I think, a million dollars a day or something like that training, you know, GPT, which most people can't afford to do that. Right. And so how do you, to your point, how do you train on smaller data sets? How do you, you know, make things faster, better, quicker? I think that's exactly the right way of looking at it is other, you know. There's a ton of really great use cases for AI. No doubt. Yeah. The hype's going to come down, but there's a ton of use cases. And I think way more, way more than blockchain. Like there's a lot of cool use cases for blockchain that I think haven't, I'm actually surprised some of them really haven't started to come to fruition at this point. Um, But I think there's a lot more use cases for AI but you you know it's going to fall off but that's that's fine yeah it's it's not going to go away it's going to do the same just like blockchain i think is starting to come back up on that uh, hype yeah. cycle anyway so maybe that's why you haven't seen it yet it's right there <laughs> moving, moving up right there these moving are the up folks that um you know when you like going back to the to the hype cycle thing that we talked about these are the true believers that are actually working on blockchain right now they're the you know, yep. they're not the hype folks. They're not any of that. They're really. Right. Real ROI, real, real value add 
and they're actually aligning that technology to the areas it should be used. And this will go the same way. I don't disagree with you at all. I, uh, I, when you ask for our own predictions, like that's one of my predictions is that we're going to be looking at how to change some of the programming languages and the compilers and everything else to now process and work with hardware more efficiently. Like I think that's a path we're going to be taking. We're going to see a change in some of these higher, these lower level languages to work with the hardware better than it does today. So, so do you, do you see, like new languages coming out? Do you see shifts in, I mean, you kind of already answered, like shifts in certain languages? Like what do you actually? I think shifts. So to shifts. Yeah, I think shifts. So I think we're going to see that they're going to have to change how they're actually compiling that language down for the hardware that it's running on. They're going to have to change the way that's working. We're going to need to optimize for the hardware that we're running on. Or we're going to have to change the models again for how we're processing altogether. Like, you know, when we were trying to do multi-threading and all the other things that came out, like, do we have to start figuring out how to break apart and run things on, what was that, SETI that ran across multiple machines, you know, like those kind of models. And that's the cloud, right? The cloud allows us to have multiple instances. But I think there's another level in there that needs to be architected and thought through. And I don't have the answer, just, just where my brain sees that. We can't just say we need to build a bigger chip a bigger processor like that's not going to work right we we need to be a little smarter than that we got to be a little creative yeah yeah i i totally agree so most of this was on ai as you can tell and then they they kind of drop a other a very random one in here as far as i see it when i look at the rest of these this one doesn't seem to make sense um i think it's interesting but doesn't make sense where it says backstage will take the center stage. So backstage for anybody that may not know is a developer portal released by Spotify in 2014 that they open sourced and donated to uh, the cloud native computing foundation in 2020 and have been, um, you know, kind of pushing that out into the market over the last few years as well. And you spoke at the last conference because you're famous. Yeah. Something I am super, super familiar with. Um, So before I give my take, I'd love to hear your take on their take. I did find it funny that it was in here, especially since we just recorded about backstage. So I did smile when I saw it. I was, you know, like it was on purpose. Somebody's going to think we did it on purpose. But the first thing that came to mind again was uh, happy developers create happy code, right? It's still that same idea. Um, I do think we need to be focusing on changing the day in a life for a developer, if we expect that we want to have more productivity, if we want to have um, better outputs and better focus for our customers, whatever that is, whether it's the interaction with the customer, whether it's the products we're building, whether it's all the personalization and everything else we're looking at. I do like the idea of backstage being on here because I think this is um, a long awaited change. Like DevX needs to be looked at because you're not going to, you're not going to keep your top performers if you don't take care of them. And it used to be take care of them and pay them, give them time off, things like that. I think it's beyond that now. I think it's actually giving us the right tools to do our job correctly and then getting rid of meeting all the extra meetings so people can actually focus, but (laughs) another tangent. And, uh, 
So, I mean, that's kind of what I said. I do like seeing it here. And then I think it even fits into some of the AI stuff we, we talked about because there are tools out there that are trying to help also optimize, right, this environment and all the end-to-end practices and processes we have to follow. I agree. So this this kind of leads into one of my predictions for 2024. Um, I, I agree with what they wrote on about this, but I don't, I don't necessarily agree that it's going to be backstage. That's going to take the lead here. Mm. Um, there's probably some people that'll be a little mad at me for saying some of this, but to me, backstage has really fallen off and they've not done a good enough job of making it a product that people can use. Do you think it's because so, it's open source, right? It's open source, right? It is open source. Um, so backstage, backstage is a framework. And so it's a framework for you to be able to go and build a developer. That has, that's a double-edged sword. So one of the problems that comes from that is you need people that understand the actual problems of developer experience. You need people that understand good user experience design. You need people that understand organizational change and driving and, and you know, making organizations run better and faster and quicker. And, and you need all of that. It, Cause backstage is a blank canvas. If you know, you go and you just install the most basic version of backstage. There's not a lot to really get you excited. Unless you know exactly what you're doing. I've done a a dozen or more of these implementations. I know what it should look like because I've done it. I've also made mistakes and learned what didn't work. And if what you're really asking people to do is design and build their own developer portal using this kind of framework. And, you know, you can look at it as like React or something like that. Right. Well, yeah, well, you're giving me React, but I got to go build my own web app. And while that is a really big benefit for backstage, it's also one of its biggest problems. Right. If I don't understand the framework and how to design it, I'm going to fail. Yeah. When I look at what a a implementation of backstage is a nine to 12 month problem. Okay. And there are some other tools in the market right now that can get you up to speed with 80% of what the end looks like that 12 months looks like gets you the 80 percent of that in a few days so then why would i pick one over the other then is there a flexibility that i get that i don't get with the prepackage because often that's why we don't buy prepackaged tools yes so you know backstage has ultimate flexibility and you know the the 80 20 rule absolutely applies here you can solve 80 percent of the problems for 20 percent of the effort that last bit is super super hard and the challenge, the challenges that you're trying to solve with a developer portal, a lot of them fall into that 80%, of course. But, you know, people think they need, you know, lots of people think they're all unicorns. Everything <laughs> they have is completely separate. Well, the challenges you have are generally fall into certain buckets. It may look a little bit different. The people may be different. The process might be a little different, but the challenge is generally the same. And I think one of the competitors of backstage 
is going to really be able to nail this particular part mm. and say, you know, I can go, you know, there's really four major features to a developer search, a catalog, some kind of documentation and some kind of scaffolding engine, right? Someone's going to be able to go and take kind of what I said about building good experiences through there and be able to nail that in 2024. And I think it's going to take a huge chunk because the people they even call out into here, I have talked to before and they are struggling with their current implementation. So you almost need a, uh, an accelerator for this, where you're starting from a, a template that says 90% of organizations need this, just plug this in first. That's and right. is that even possible? Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the biggest problem with that is an open source community is probably never going to be able to do that. Yeah. And that's the, that's the issue. And there's a ton of kind of startups in the developer portal space. I seem to get a new one almost every day that gets dropped on my lap. Mm. So it breaks my rule of, you know, happy developers create happy code because what you're telling me is the tool, if not correctly configured is not happy developers. (laughs) You, you, if you're not careful, you can absolutely make your developer experience worse. And this is one, a developer portal is one of those ways that can absolutely kick it in the shins. Right. And destroy the, destroy the culture and the environment that you're trying to create. Yep. Um, so I feel like we've kind of beat that one to death. Yeah. Yeah. I was um, just going to say, we should call customer service. Cause that is the next one. <laughs> that, is, that is the next one. Go ahead. Kick this one off. Here. So this one was interesting. And I, I do think this one is somewhat useful, even though no one likes them. And this one was Gen AI and customer service, right? Highlighting the potentials for improvement in overall customer experience, whether it's through chatbots or, you know, other products that generally just assist in the interaction of customer service. Now, I think having a good chatbot that's uh, trained well enough to handle most situations is useful, even though people don't like talking to chatbots. I think online assistance that's able to look through documentation, help you answer questions, you know, things like that. I think that's useful. Um, I think there are a lot of scenarios and situations where customer experience can be extended without even realizing it. There's um, the ability to add this into... I don't know, let's say phone calls. And now I can monitor phone calls better and I can look for patterns and different things that come up and I can look for issues and problems based on a conversation that I couldn't do before. And then based off of that, I can I can create reports or I can escalate phone calls or I can do other things that help. So instead of somebody getting so mad where they have to say, give me your manager, right? I can catch that beforehand and I can help that situation, thus diffusing that really angry customer before they become an angry customer. Like you can listen for those tones and those changes in the voice. Yeah, I, I, I agree. No one likes to talk to a computer, but I looked at this one a little bit differently. And for someone that likes to break parts on my Jeep, I tend to go talk to people at the auto parts store quite often. Right. And, you know, what are AI things really good at? It's searching a common set of data to give you back really good information. And one of the challenges 
that I have when I go to buy parts from said parts store if I need to go and I'm just not buying them online is they have no idea what the hell I'm actually talking about. And, you know, it's hard to hire car people at an auto parts store. And so they're just like, tell me what year, tell me what make. Is this what you're looking for? Is that what you're looking for? And where I think, I think there's a, you know, if you were to overlay a, you know, kind of a Gen AI language model on top of something like that, it could be insanely beneficial. Yeah. Where it's like, hey, I've got a broken fender on a, you know, 2016 Saab. I don't know, whatever. Yep. And it can then point you like, well, hey, what about this? What about that? And it can, you can start to have a conversation with it. And essentially you're making the AI an automotive expert. Because you can train it on all that information. Right. Because it, it can be the chit manual, you know, virtually. Yeah. And I think that this is a great example because it's not me talking to an AI. And I know in one of our episodes, I ranted about how I had to talk to an AI at Amazon and I wanted to just lose my mind. Yep. But it's a really great hybrid. It's I can talk to a person who could be empathetic to my situation and all of those kinds of things. And they can also be a relative expert in what they're doing. And that, that I think will, will, you know, whether it's an airline, whether it's anybody, you know, you're instead of them having to look through notes and documentation and all those other things. Oh, can you, can you wait a second while I research this topic? All they're doing is going into some kind of shared document and and searching and trying to figure out what the problem is. Right. I take it even a step further and have it listen to the conversation. So it's already searching and bringing up information for me while I'm on the phone with you. So you get a real person, but that real person seems to be a SME in the content. And now they can really talk to you from a different level, better language, better vocabulary. That's where the magic comes in. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think we will see uh, into 2024 and, and beyond more companies trying to, you know, extend uh, their customer service to, to enhance how they're trying to help their customers because organizations also realize at the end of the day, they have to take care of their customers. Customers are leaving uh, companies to go to other companies at, you know, amazingly fast rates for the simplest things. The smallest yeah. thing that annoys a customer and they're gone. They, their loyalty is not the same as it was years ago. Well, it's because it's so easy to, to go to a different website or to whatever, to get the product from someone else. Yep. I went into a store yesterday looking for a small connector I needed for my camera. They don't carry it in the store because they're afraid of getting shoplifted for it. I get it. I don't disagree. There are ways you could handle that. Uh, I walked out of the store and bought it from my car on Amazon, shipped it home. Like there you go. I tried to buy it from another store and support them, but they couldn't support me. So uh, challenge. It's, it's a tough world out there. So to me, there's only one other one in here that I think is, is relatively interesting. And that's the Europe will lead hybrid work adoption. Yeah. That was interesting. That one. Yeah. And I don't know if we've ever actually talked about this, but where, where do you fall on the hybrid hybrid work versus remote versus on site? Hmm. I don't think you and I have actually not on a, on a micro, we haven't, uh, maybe off a of mic. I don't but even know if we've ever talked about this just in, in general. I, it's a good question. I don't know. Um, let's talk about it now. <laughs> <laughs> so um, 
Living up in the woods and having no one around and going to the office once in a while was a really nice change of pace, but not all the time because the travel was also an hour and a half each way. So, yes, I have a maybe a different view than some people might have. Like if you lived in the city and you walked to the office or something, but the water cooler effect. Right. The ability to bump into people and have a general conversation and that socializing is something that I think is necessary. And I think it's something that's missing. So I. I support fully remote, but I think the social and psychology psychology side of us needs a hybrid. I. I don't I don't disagree with you. I'm going to take a little bit more of a nuanced approach where to me, it comes down to value. And the reason, the reason that you don't want to take the hour and a half drive downtown is because there's not enough value. And if, if you were to say, if I were to say to you, Hey, I have this really important client that wants to spend $50 million this year and he just wants to be able to have a conversation with you, sit down and talk about this thing, and he's ready to go. I guarantee, I guarantee you, you are going to jump on a train as fast as you possibly can and get down there. Well, yeah, I was on a call value. at 4 a.m. to talk to Japan for the same reason. Somebody needed it. There's value. You did it. Yeah, there's value. <laughs> and so I look at it as where are you in a given thing? So maybe you just kicked off a new project. There's a lot of design. There's a lot of implementation. There's a lot of just conversation that needs to happen about how well, like, what is a thing that's going to do in that scenario? I think it makes complete sense to have that working group come in and say, hey, we can be more efficient. Working together in one location, right? And, you know, after that's moving on and maybe it's into more of like delivery, there's less of it. Go work from home. If I'm you know, trying to write a strategy document or, you know, another, any, any kind of a document or presentation or whatever, leave me alone. I need to get into a flow state to be able to get this thing done, to get my, my thoughts out of my head and all of those kinds of things. So that one go work from home. And, you know, I think, but the, the, the problem with that is that takes a lot of good leadership. Yes. And most organizations don't have that kind of leadership to be able to maintain and manage all of them. Yeah, I don't. Because in, in, in that model, you're essentially, it's, it's the trust and autonomy yes. that people, that people talk about all the time that most people don't have. I can take that team of people and say, I expect you to give me this output and you need to be able to figure out what the right thing is. At, like the leader, I'm pointing to the leader. You need to figure out what the right thing is to make this happen. Right. Leader's and, intent. I tell you what I need. You figure out with the team how to get there. How you get there, I don't care, but that's what I need. Yep. Yeah. And so, and to me, this is where the, the, the harder part of leadership comes in. So if I say to that person, do what it takes to make this happen. They say, everybody's working remote full all the time. They don't deliver on the project because they didn't spend enough time together to get all of the, the things ironed out. They made it three quarters of the way through. They found a major issue and all of a sudden it's late. It's over budget, you know, pissed off client, all kinds of other things. Great. It's your ass. Right. And that's where the, really the hard leadership comes in is, you know, driving outcomes, driving expectations, 
And you should be able to have a level of autonomy to do that. Theoretically, if you're doing the right management with the people and you're doing the right feedback and you're asking questions, you'll catch that before that happens because sure. you can start asking questions and kind of coach them to think about bringing people in. But I agree with you. It needs that autonomy. Um, right. You also answered to a deeper level than I was thinking with my general thing. And I like it. I don't disagree with what you said, but I would take it a little further too and say, even my drive to the office or my train ride to the office, it still had value because remember earlier I said, I read and I listened to uh, 43 books. <laughs> Which one is it, Dan? Come on. We're going to go with listen right now, right? Because um, they get really upset if I was reading while I was driving. And that time over the years, I found was very very positive for me. I use that time very effectively and I'm glad I did. But all those books over all the years that I read have helped me now later in life. So I wouldn't give back that time, even though I'd love to have back the time I sat in that, uh, that car for hours, but it was, I got value out of it. So I think you can make, you can make the time productive one way or another. Right. But that doesn't mean I think that everybody should be in the office every time because I do with my own experience, believe that if you're in the office every day, you start to lose focus as well because you are Absolutely. tired of meetings. You're tired of everything. You're tired of the noise. Like you need that variation. So I still think a hybrid, that's a team-based hybrid, not an organizational. A friend of mine was telling me the other day that they're forced to go into the office, I think two or three times a week. Everybody's coming in on, on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Right. Nope. Wrong answer. Like that's, that's not going to work. Yeah. No, because it's not contextual at all to what you're doing. Right. It's I'm just you're just forcing everybody to be here at a certain time. It, you're not going to get, in my opinion, you're not going to get the value from that that you would hope. Yes. Yeah. What you said before of us as a team deciding when was the best day to go in. It doesn't have to be all day either. It could be half a day. It could be a couple hours. It can be whatever makes sense. We work on what we need to work on together and then we break and go to our own corners again. Like that's yeah. the most effective. I, I flew to New York for basically a four hour meeting this week hmm? and it made sense because it needed to happen in person. It was a valuable meeting that I needed to be there in person that really couldn't happen via zoom. Right. Well, could it have happened? Yes. Would it have had the same output? No. No, there's something about being physically in a location compared to being on zoom next week. I'm going to do the same and I'm doing a, a workshop in person because the workshop requires hands-on. It requires being in front of people. It's tactile. It's, it's, you have to be smart with those decisions. But if you are smart with those decisions, the output is amazing compared to either having people, right? We saw through COVID, 100% remote is not effective. I, I totally agree. I totally agree. You're, and it's one of the reasons why no one can measure it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, you know, um, I forget who it was. It was one of the CEOs, I think, that came out. I was like, I believe we're all better when we're in the office. I don't have data to prove it, but I believe that it's true. <laughs> and I believe that he feels that way. But again, you, you know, making a binary choice is never a good thing generally. I'd be curious what it was based on because like, you know, the company I'm working for now, we all went to the corporate office and we had a, a one week 2024 planning session and I got to meet a ton of people from the company, amazing people and shake their hands and get to know them and talk to them. And like, you would never would have been the same through video. And 
that is an experience that I was so happy to have, right? That was the in-person experience. That was the real world, real people. And that's one of the reasons I think certain groups of people or certain people say that you have to be in the office is for that experience, that piece of it. Yeah. I will stick my guns to hybrid because that is, that's necessary, especially when you start a new company, you start with a new team because you need to build that um, connection. You'll never get it through video. Now, once you have that connection, then you can be more flexible, but you've built a certain rapport before you start. Right. I I look at it as, um, and I'm, I'm stealing this, the hybrid or the little bit of a, change of this from like the 37 signals guys, they talk about a trust battery. Mm. And I think this is actually kind of similar where it is a connection battery. We're like, I meet you and I'm, you know, my battery kind of gets charged up and the less and less and less I see of you, that just kind of just drops and drops and drops and drops. And then I feel like I don't know you anymore. Right. I haven't talked to you in, you know, especially when you're not, you know, when you're talking in leadership levels like that, I don't work directly with you. And if I don't talk to you for four or five months, I'm going to be less apt to like pick up the phone and text you and more like, I'm going to send you an email. Right. Cause then so you get nervous lost. and you're not sure to reach out. And yep. yeah. Cause you've lost that connection over time. And so you have to, in my opinion, keep building that up on some certain cadence. And you know, when you meet in person, bam, you can just jump that thing to a hundred. Yeah. You know, if you, if you meet over zoom, it might go up two or 3%, something like that. Well, that was the, and that's valid because that's the member management by walking around. So you'd pop around and talk to people all the time and you just stop by how you doing, has everything okay. And it allowed you to be face to face at different times with people. Even if you didn't work with them all the time, you just kind of popped in. You do that to other departments, other managers and directors you worked with, you know, like you had this cadence of keeping that up. So I think that's a really a really good uh, reminder and a story uh, of that because it is important. That's why people on LinkedIn, we make friends, we connect with people on LinkedIn and we don't talk to them for years and we see the names on there and either we go, Oh, I don't remember where I met this person or we're now nervous to reach out to them because we haven't talked to them in, you know, five years was the last job or something else. And now we feel like strangers. That's right. So I do have a couple other interesting predictions that I came up with. Okay. Unless you, I, I, I don't, I don't think the, any of the other ones are on this forest or one are super interesting. I don't mind going forward. There was, I think one other one I thought was kind of interesting, but we can, uh, let's do it. We can skip ahead. I think, where was it? Um, uh, the one that was uh, number nine, it was generational shifts in B2B buying. And I, I thought that one was oh, kind of interesting. Yeah, we did shift this one or skip this one. So this Um, one I liked because, so I'm old as we know, not old, old. (laughs) I look, I look 30 still. I'm going to go with 30. Um, It's the haircut. So um, I worked at a Radio Shack when Radio Shack was still around and they'd give us books to learn and memorize from. So you could be a SME for all the electronics and all the equipment that was in the store. So it was great. So anybody who came in would get top-notch service from us because we knew what we needed to know about the products. We had to memorize it. You had to learn it. What I found interesting in this one, it's kind of saying that um, augmented 
you know, Gen AI using augmentation of the customer service part, but in a, a way that I wonder, is it going to destroy our ability to have those experts, the people who read the books, the people that learn all that information where the AI becomes the SME and then basically the, the need for those people are, is either they're not needed anymore or they're just picking up an iPad or a phone and just reading to you what the computer's telling them. So they've gotten dumber, not smarter on a context thing that they could very well be very smart at. Well, and I think that's, to me, that's kind of how I read this a little bit where, you know, when engaged and, you know, kind of quoting here, when engaged in face-to-face buying, Forrester's data shows that buyers find personal interactions with product experts more meaningful than any other in-person activity. And the way that I kind of read this is I don't want to hear what the AI has to say. I don't want to tell me about your experience with this thing and tell me how well this is actually going to do. And it, it goes into that kind of personal interaction we were talking about before. And, you know, yes, I can have my AI overlord tell me how to design this thing. But if you've done this for 20 years or 15 years or whatever, you've, you've made the mistakes you've learned. You've, you know, yeah, you have an experience. The AI will never have, you can tell me things that it can't. That's right. Yeah. And in, in the, the space that we're in now, a, those kinds of people are becoming harder and harder to find. That's why, I believe these people are going to become more and more important. And I know in our like Gen AI episode, go back and check that out if you haven't. I talked a lot about a renaissance of human created content. And I think this is a great example of, I want to talk to you about this. Right. This is where people are going to stand out. It's not going to be the AI side of it, right? It's going to be moving in the opposite direction. Like you said, the renaissance of that. Yeah, because, you know, the one thing we didn't really talk about here is where we kind of did a little bit, but the the kind of the fake information, the misinformation, mm. things that are out there that can I really trust this thing anymore? And, you know, yes, it can give me good information, I think, but I, I have to be weary of its error rate and the other things that that kind of come from it. And I have to be prepared for it to lie to me. And right. so, okay, well, I would hope that I can look you in the eye and you're not going to lie to me in the same way. And you have to keep in mind now we're talking about this being used for marketing. So marketing is doubling down. We also have things like um, retailers, let's say hyper-personalization I've talked about often. And if we're going to continue to double down on how we're personalizing all the contents you see on a website about a product, all the copy, um, all the marketing, you get everything else. And then you go search the web. And again, it's based on Gen AI type of creation. The models that are underneath are going to have the same text. So that what you read might be the same everywhere. So now it's a broken record. Now you're being oh, not brainwashed, but brainwashed into just thinking that one thing about that product. You're not getting an alternative alternative um, view of that product, like you're saying. So that SME, that expert that's willing to step out and have their own point of view is going to, I think, do well in the future. I, I think that's a valid call out your head. I think there's a, an opportunity there for those 
people who want to take the extra effort um, to do very well. They will do very well. I think they will find niches for themselves to do well. And I don't know if it's because they'll end up on social media like we see people today because they create their own channels and they're willing yeah. to talk beyond it. Or if it's literally just working for an organization, but being that one person who's standing out, like, I don't know where that's going to go yet, but I think there will be something. Well, and, and model decay is something we've talked about a little bit, but absolutely applies here. When you keep feeding more AI generated information into an AI, it's going to get worse and worse. Well, we're and not perfect at data yet, so we are going to make it dirty. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to have somebody that kind of comes and cleans that up. And, you know, an interesting thing that came up last week was, um, and I'm going to write a little bit of a post on this one, so look forward to it, but where ChatGPT was getting lazy. I see that now when I talk to it and stuff too. And I, I didn't know if it's because of the way they reprogrammed part of it because they felt like it was overworking and they're trying to optimize the processing. So they're making, they're making me have to be better at writing my scripts to force it to talk to me. Or if it's just because of and all the, I think it's the, it's the, the, the constant feedback that's coming in. Mm. And one of the, like some of the interesting examples that I found on like Reddit and a couple other places where asking it for code for a certain thing, you know, trying to solve a coding problem. And it kind of was like, Hey, like, here's the answer. You can kind of fill in the rest. Yeah. Instead of just providing all the information and, um, and I, I, I don't know, I'm not an expert into here, but it feels like it is learning more from what we're giving it. And it's, Learning bad habits of human, you know, to go back to yeah. the, you know, the, the Twitter bot from a long time ago, I forget its name, but within like two hours, it had become a racist, like <laughs> you know, Holocaust denying, like I mean, it was just, it was terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. I absolutely pulled down. I forget the name of it, but it was, <laughs> it was an epic disaster, but you know, you're going to, those feedback loops are going to happen and you have you know, a ton of AI generated content out there now. And that is going to feed back into this stuff. And to the point you were making, it's going to solidify on certain answers that might be wrong. And, you know, like for folks that remember going and looking around on like stack overflow and other things in the past, there's times where like, I've got it. you got to search down to like, quite a bit to find the actual answer, even though there's an accepted answer up there. It's not really the it's best like, well, answer. That's, that's not really right. Maybe anymore. Maybe this is the newest thing, but it hasn't had time to kind of recirculate up. And, yeah. And, you know, so those challenges are going to be there. And to, to, to circle this one back, the human that can come in and say, yeah, that used to be the way you do it. Maybe that's okay. But this is really the way you want to think about it. That's really going to optimize for everything that you're trying to do. Right. Will the system be smart enough to re, um, continually relearn and remap so that it, it can somewhat unmap? Because we say that, you know, we need to be agile as humans in general, because things we learn when we're younger, we need to relearn or we learn new things and we remodel and we remap and, you know, we 
we learn from pain. So all through life, when things fail and go wrong, we learn from it and we change. Is the system going to do that or is it just going to keep giving us a watered down version of an answer it learned the first time because it doesn't know how to be agile enough in its own system? It'll be interesting to see. Hopefully it is something that we take into account at some point. Yeah. Agreed. No, no, no. So I had, I'll had one more prediction that I want to throw out there. Cause I think I did have some other ones, but I'll leave those off. We've, we've already kind of touched on them a little bit. Okay. But the other one, this, this one that I, we've somehow missed up until now. Apple vision pro is going to be released very, very soon. And there's already developers working on it. There is a ton of really cool stuff coming. And I believe that this is the year where we are finally going to see a different way of interacting with things. I still believe the metaverse is dead and gone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, virtual reality is a thing. A minority that, report could be real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The um to me virtual reality is such a hard thing to do that we are just not ready. And I don't think yeah. that it's going to be a thing that is not just completely cartoonish for a long time until we really truly solve a computing problem. That is 10 X what we can do now or hundred X. We're never going to really solve the VR problem. It's always going to be super janky and it's not going to work. Yeah. AR on the other hand is really where and, you know, how do you want to define Vision Pro? Is it AR? Is it VR? The way that I kind of describe it, you know, VR, completely virtualized world. Well, I look at Vision Pro as really being more AR. Shoot me if you disagree, but whatever. No, I don't disagree, actually. And I also think that is the path things are going to take first. But think about, you know, I think where the first, you're, you're going to see it. We've talked about this before. Where, where are, you know, where does the money come from that supports a lot of these things? One of them is not a thing that a lot of people are going to want to talk about, but the second one is sports. Yeah. And it's a billion, billion, billion dollar, many billions of dollars go into sports every year. And if you can put these things on, have an immersive experience where you were sitting courtside at a basketball game. Right. You can You're pay for a seat to, to still be at a seat at the, at the game. You can stand in, you know, an F1 paddock and look around and see what's happening. You know, be right there as the cars come flying by and you have to move your head to see them. All of that. Yep. That is an experience that used to cost Hundreds of thousands of dollars for some things, depending on exactly what you're talking about, especially F1. I get yeah. it's expensive. But, you know, you can start to use this new mechanism to be able to change the way people gather and experience entertainment in a way that's never been possible before. And we have, I do believe AI is going to be able to help with some of this where you're going to need a lot of that kind of stuff running in the background to help with some of that. But it is, I think this year is really going to set the foundation for some of these really, really interesting and cool things that a lot of us can't even 
Ink up. Yeah, I... It's funny because that was actually one of mine I was going to bring up too is I think augmented reality is going to see sometime into next year, it's going to start seeing its path. I was actually talking to some clients and some partners over the last several months um, about things that they're working on and things they're thinking of. And it's all down that path because there's a lot of things that we do day to day that augmented reality could truly enhance without taking people out of um, interacting with their space. Right. I like the minority report idea with the monitors. Like, you know, I have a big room here with a bunch of monitors. I'd love to be able to put the headset on and just hang all of my notes and information and the video we're on and everything else just on the walls and places and work with it. Like to me, that would be amazing. And, uh, I, I think it's going to be interesting when we see where that shows up. Does it show up in a lot of the new functionality we're putting into cars? So when you're driving, you're getting more heads up displays. Does it show up in the house like more overlay type things where your shopping list is on the wall in the kitchen? But, it, you know, it's just a an augmented piece that you see through a set of uh, glasses you're wearing. Like you don't need the big headset. It's actually just a, a normal set of, of eyeglasses. And like, what does that look like? It could be a completely different experience. I I totally agree. Yeah. Um, the challenge we have with, with some of that is going to be the hardware parts. Yes. And I think the vision pro is the first step towards a lot of that. Well, I know there's commercial ones that are out there that, um, uh, companies, I think Lenovo has one actually, and it's a regular set of eyeglasses. So it's not a big headset unit. It's actually augmented reality sunglasses, basically. Yeah. And you can still tell when you're wearing them, but they are just a normal size of sunglasses. Well, it depends on how augmented are you are you trying to get right, and what is it trying to to give you, and how you know immersive do you want it to be. You know, the Vision Pro is rather immersive, but if you are trying to gather information, like if you worked in a building or a factory or whatever, and you needed more information about the you know the space in which you're in, that would benefit you and your your <laughs> Physical health, possibly. Yep. I think there's there's a lot of opportunity there to absolutely feed people information. Yeah. The last one I have that I'll throw out, I don't know if you've thought about, is changing, and it's funny because it's been a theme in conversation all day, um, a change in our educational system and how we do education and how people are getting educated. And I think the I think what we're seeing today between AI, between VR and AR stuff, between a lot of the technologies, I think we could come up with a way of having a more um, personalized educational system or technologies that help you to have more custom training and learning and education. It could be a whole reform of of that space where, you know, you can, you know, if you're remember reading ever like back with, I think it was Socrates and a lot of the, that time period, you would find a mentor and you'd follow them around and you'd learn from them what you were going to learn. Then you'd find your next mentor and your next mentor, and you'd learn from, from certain people for skill sets you needed. Um, I have a book here from Leonardo da Vinci's notebook. And like, even he has in there notes of talk to this guy, talk to this guy, talk to this girl, you know, like go find out and learn from people to learn things. I think they're, I think we could use a lot of these technologies to revamp the education 
not the system itself, maybe, but like the technologies used in it. So we enhance the overall ability for people to learn and grow. Well, I, I agree. I don't know if we're going to get there next year, but I think this is absolutely something we should be focusing in on because AI helps with this a lot. Yeah. Cause it's a, it's a finite problem that you need to be able to, you end up with essentially a individual tutor for every person. Right. And right. you can grow at, you know, at their speed, whatever that speed is. If they're very good at science, great. You can move quickly in science. If they need more help in math, then you can get them more help in math. Instead of, you know, the challenge I always had in school was I was running at the same speed as the rest of it. And I went very quickly. And it was always very frustrating for me to deal with it. It's one of the reasons that I did kind of poorly in school is I didn't have I wasn't pressed at all on any of it. And this really helps give that kind of guidance in a very personalized way that gives the, gives them what they need to actually be successful. Yeah. No I like longer. the custom tutor idea. I think that's a great way to, to look at it. And, you know, your, your, your teacher becomes the helper, you know, back to the, the in-person Yes, you need that in person, but they're there to help when there's a problem, not to, you know, drive everybody all at the same time and stand up there and give the same lecture. And because some people are not ready, some people are, and, and some people totally miss the fundamentals. Right. Well, great. Let's get them going and move them in the, the right way. If, you know, you're, it, you could almost in that way even get rid of the grade system. If you're really thinking about it, what does it matter if you're in first or second or third? Those numbers are arbitrary, right? They're based on the time in which you were born and have nothing to do with your skill set or the way that you actually learn. This is the stuff we need you to learn over a 12, 12 year period. And we need you to be proficient in these things. Great. Go as quickly or as slowly as you need in any of these things. But, and we can see your progress as you move along. And I think that is a, it, that also takes bias out of it. It takes agenda out of it. It takes lots of the other problems that, that might be there and go back to kind of reading and arithmetic. Right. We focus more on the actual education system part of it and not a lot of the other things that have been happening um, that are causing students and children and everyone not to really learn what they need as they're growing up. So they're getting into the workforce and they're ill-prepared for what they're, they're about to see. Yeah. So it's another area of, of interest. I think it's something that all these technologies could help us with. Um, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, we have things like IoT and Smart City and all those other things that have been around forever. I don't think they're going to come around any faster yet, you know. No. And, um, you know, one more I will throw out here. I know we're, we're already running pretty late with this, but one more I'll throw out here. And you've you've seen a handful of people call this out already couple of CEOs call this out already, but I believe this is going to be a, a big push into next year. And it's really around the concept of fake work. Fake and work. Okay. Yeah. So if you, and I am, I did start an article on this too, but I'm not going to promise I'm going to have it anytime soon, <laughs> but um, Spotify recently laid off 17% of their staff. And it's the third layoff they've had this year, totaling up to about 25%-ish of their organization. And one of the things that Daniel Eck, I believe is his name? Yes. 
I always get David and Daniel mixed up. So when one of the things that he talked about is we have, we have too many people supporting the work and not actually doing the work that's necessary to. Okay. So by fake work, you mean uh, layers of management? Um, I think layers of management are a part of the problem, but it's so let's, uh, here's an example. So, so say I want to build a model to train on whatever stock prices doesn't matter. Okay. And I want to try to predict the stock price for tomorrow in, instead of just writing a model that can do that, maybe I write a model that trains other models to be able to do that because maybe I need models that train other models because I can then just change the parameters and it can, it can create something different. Right. Like the one I gave you the other day. (laughs) Or, you know, say I'm a university and we have a bus system that helps people shuffle around the city and around the campus. And instead of buying a piece of software to track all of it, I go and write my own software to track the buses around the university it's terrible. It's buggy. Nobody ever uses it. And it's just a thing that's there that I have to maintain, but nobody ever uses it because it sucks. Okay. But I'm not getting the call out. I'm not understanding the, the exact component so, of it then. Cause if it's it, not management itself, um, it comes, it comes down to value creation and it is management. It's the problem. They are prioritizing doing work that doesn't matter. So, but is it really because you're saying it's poor prioritization? So we're wasting cycles that could be better spent on other things. So, yes, it also comes down to the fact of how many times we got in the phone call in December. Hey, I've got a million bucks that I got to spend by the end of the year or I lose my budget. (laughs) Yeah. Instead of making that decision, it's no, I lose the budget because I don't need it. Or, you know, what am I build? How can I build and solve a problem for the cheapest, fastest, easiest way possible? And that very rarely ever happens. You end up building all kinds of, all kinds of things that don't necessarily matter. I've seen all kinds of products that have a million features that don't need to be there. And it's really because I have this amount of people that I need to, I need to keep busy. I've got to come up with things that I need to do and I'm going to fill whatever um, whatever, what is it? Prento's law work, work expands to fill the time allotted to it. That's yeah. right. And uh, you know what, you know, what they're really coming up with is, you know, you're, you're doing things that just don't move the ball forward down the field. Okay. I understand and, better. What you're saying is you're kind of saying it's, it's looking to say, um, what we were saying was it's like dead weight. It's like no value added from, but I think, Oh, that's a tough one. I'm going to, I'm interested to see your article now yeah, because yeah. It's, it's this a, is a concept, it's kind of a new concept. Well, and it's a slippery slope in some ways, I think. And, and it in itself could be a good conversation actually for, for us to dive into because yeah. there's things like government, non-government sectors, and not that they are doing it correctly, but they have that problem generally because people look to go work for the government because they hold budgets and, and they're, they have to have the same amount of money every year. So they have to spend the same amount, like all these weird things that happen, which causes exactly what you're saying. Um, private sector doesn't happen the same, but private sector, you have games that play in large organizations that also do some of what you're saying. So, but then how do you truly identify it in the correct way to know where you need to, you know, take the 
a little bit off the top and and that way you don't get rid of the wrong because it could be good people trying to do the right things but also doing some of this extra stuff where really all they need is guidance and feedback and not so much letting them all go so it's interesting it's a super interesting topic yeah that is you know with the the macroeconomic headwinds (laughs) you know people are looking to drive efficiency there's a lot of pointing at you know, kind of developer experience and developer productivity, you know, in software companies, developers make up a lot of it and they're expensive. Yep. So how can you make them more efficient? Well, they're going to also, I believe, look at across the organization. What are the things that we're doing that don't necessarily need to be done? Yes. And, and, and I think overall that was even in this PDF though, like, yeah, from my experience, I took over an analytics company or an analytics team at one point. When in my career, when I started, we had around 700 reports we were managing, maintaining and shipping out every day. Some of them were via BI. Some of them were running scripts and Excel sheets and all kinds of stupid stuff. Again, this was like 2013, by the way. So it was a little more. Okay. But, and when I first started, we said, you know, oh my gosh, we need more people. We can't manage all of this stuff. We need more people. It's a constant disaster. And I asked the simple question of, Oh, who's actually using these? Like what, what is, is, do we really need 600 reports? And the answer was, I don't know. Like we, that no one knew the answer. Yeah. Turn them all off. See if anybody calls. Oh, I, I couldn't find the owners of any of these things. And that's exactly what I did. I turned off the entire thing and just waited for someone to call. Perfect. I'm ready to turn it back on. No problem, but we're going to see what happens. And I was told I was a maniac, but I did it anyway. And in the end, we had around 50 reports that were actually being used. And great. You know, we kept the other ones around in case it was like a quarterly report or something that everybody, whatever. Like, But we turned off about 600 reports. And instead of needing, having a team of eight that needed to be 12, we now had a team of eight that really could have been four. Right. And instead we were actually going towards solving true business problems and needs instead of just ranking that hamster wheel and, you know, solving these challenges take good leadership. And so there's going to be struggles, but what I think is going to happen is you're going to see incredible amounts of belt tightening from a budget perspective. Yeah. And for predictions, I agree with that. I think there are going to be changes in the investments that are made in organizations for a lot of the things that were nice to haves or try to make geopolitical decisions to show that you're playing nice in the world or something else. And people are going to say, I don't have money for that anymore. I'm just trying to keep the company afloat. And a lot of things, even things like team outings and growth initiatives and all that kind of stuff, like all that's going to get pushed aside for a while. And if you can show me an ROI, a real ROI, not just, oh, well, here's something I made up that says that you spend X and you're going to get Y, like a real ROI. Yeah, great. Let's do that. And, you know, there's another another kind of minor prediction is product managers are going to be held to revenue targets more than they ever have in the past. I agree with that as well. And they should be. 
because a lot of a lot of times those are the people that are okaying building the 700 features that no one uses. And if they're held to revenue targets, you're going to be a little more prescriptive on where you spend your money and how you spend your money versus the money that's actually coming in. Yeah, the P&Ls for some of the stuff should be adjusted to different levels and and different than they are today. It's incentive structures. Yeah. Change incentive structures and go from there. Yep. And, you know, you gave everybody a bonus on all the money that you saved every year, probably see a lot different outcome. Yeah. hundred percent. So I think this whole last one here can end up being another show or two. We got some Absolutely good, good could. stuff here, my friend. Yeah. Um, it's what happens when you have some time to think. Yeah. yeah. Well, you get one day <laughs> off and look at us. We got a couple articles. We got a new website. Now we're still building up our, uh, our, uh, what you call it? What is it? Substack and trying to get that set up and, so if people can't find us for a week or two, it's because we're reconfiguring and it's Our all looking good. Are now available on YouTube, and we're on YouTube yeah. now. Yep, and we will be having video based content as well. Yeah, soon in it's, uh, January we're 20, thinking, right? Yeah, twenty twenty four is going to be a big deal. Yes, and we are excited. Oh, this uh, you know, I think this is going to be great. You know, the another fun episode we can do a year from now is look back and make fun of ourselves for how poorly we got this all wrong. We, we missed the, you know, I don't know, horse headed aliens that came down <laughs> and took over. And now we have new overlords. I don't know how we missed it, but we can now make fun of ourselves in 12 months and, and, you know, see exactly how bad we got it wrong. That would be fun to do. Yes. Well, it's a been a fun one. I think this is a uh, really interesting to just try to, look into our crystal ball and see where we go. Yes, this was perfect. I appreciate it. And we thank Forrester for letting us use their PDF here as well, since it <laughs> helped us get some uh, really good conversations. So that's right, man. Until the next time. Yeah. Cheers. It's been fun. Cheers. Cheers.